Have you ever wondered where your tap water comes from? I know, is it, is it from an aquifer? How it compares to bottled water? To me, it feels like I'm drinking cleaner water. And whether we could ever run out? Our water supplies are finite, and we need to be a bit more careful with our water use. In our first episode, we wade through the common misconceptions about water and put our tap water to the test with Canada's first water sommelier, Christina Lee. And yes, that is a thing. We'll also touch on the challenges our water faces amid a growing population with the region's Director of Water Services, Mary McNeil, and Supervisor Dan Mahar. And from the University of Waterloo, Dr. Mark Servos will join us to talk about his research and working with the region to understand what's happening in the river, another important water source for us. So get comfortable and pour yourself a glass. Welcome to your region pod. I'm Sherry Morley with the Region of Waterloo, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Sam Gajanovich. On this podcast, we cover issues and go behind the scenes with regional services that impact your life every day, sometimes without you even knowing it. We'll have some interesting guests, and today, it's a water sommelier. Christina says bottled water is one of the fastest rising beverage sectors in the world. So how does it compare to the stuff coming out of our taps here in the region? We first took this question to the street. Do you prefer bottled or tap water? Tap water, because I have a really good filter system in the house. So you trust your drinking water? Yes. I drink tap water, so I think the region gives me water I can drink. Tap water that I put through a Brita. I'm sure it's quite drinkable. It just doesn't taste as great as well water that I grew up on. We use a Brita filter for our Keurig, right? So, so I think the water here is, is okay. I think I prefer bottled. Um, I think the taste is just better. <laughs> I also prefer bottled water. To me, it feels like I'm drinking cleaner water. So which type of water really is better for us, and can we taste the difference? Sam sat down with water sommelier Christina Lee to find out. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure, certainly. My easy explanation is that I'm actually the water version of a wine sommelier. So literally what we do or how we got certified is that we need to understand, have an ample knowledge about water, in particular about the taste of water, uh, about how hydration can, you know, better our health, uh, and also the minerals in the water, how it can aid in terms of our wellness. Today, Sam, I'm going to challenge you to see if you're able to you know, sense a little difference from one water to another. So what you have in front of you is actually four samples of water. Uh, among those four, three of them are actually the top three best-selling water in the world. Okay, and obviously one of them among those four is actually our, our finest, you know, regional water from, from, from your kitchen. First of all, whenever we taste water, the most important thing is that you don't smell anything, right? Uh, you don't smell anything bad. Otherwise, you shouldn't even taste that water. Okay, so take a sniff and see how you feel. Okay, I'm going in. I can't, I don't think I'm smelling anything. Which is good. Okay, next things I want you to do, Sam, is that I want you to start, you know, taste water like you're tasting wine, okay? So literally, let's try number one first, okay? And, you know, just take a, uh, take a sip of it, swallow around it, and sip it through. Okay. And see how you, how you like it. I feel like, I feel like number one is definitely a bottled water. <laughs> I feel like it, it feels like a treated water. Like there's, there's a, I don't want to say plastic sense to it, but there's, 
It doesn't feel like a mineral taste. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. Now, since you have number one, I want you to keep number one in front of you. Now, how about you take a sip of number two? Hmm. I think there's something even stronger about that mm. taste. Does it give your mouth dry after you swallow it through? Okay. Yes, it kind of does. Yeah. Right. Let's cool. go take a, take a sip of number three. I feel like it does the same sort of thing where it sort of I, I, my mouth dries after. Mm-hmm. And it certainly tastes like it has a sort of treatment to it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now let's compare number four with your number one. Oh, number four is different from all of them. When I sip it, I find that the first sensation that I have on me is actually on the two side of the palate, which indicate to me that it actually have a sodium content in this water, somewhat, somehow, right? Yeah. And and also, aftertaste is a little bit of a light bitterness. That's the indication of a calcium magnesium presence to me for the water. So if, if, for you, number four and number one, which one do you like more? Hmm. I definitely prefer four over three. And, okay. and in fact, I think I, I, would, I would take it overall. But I sort of I have a suspicion that it's, it's uh, my tap water. It is. Number four is your tap water. <laughs> All those three or the, the three best-selling water are not water that I personally prefer because they are what I, we usually call processed water. What that means is that it basically strips out all the natural minerals in the water. So, Sam, you were clearly able to tell the difference between tap and bottle? Oh, yes. There was a marked difference, particularly side by side. According to Christina, the reason for this has to do with the lack of minerals in most types of bottled water. Minerals tend to get stripped out during the distillation process. Our tap water, however, retains these minerals, which is beneficial to our health and, in my opinion, improves the taste. It was an eye-opening experience, and it got me thinking about where we get our water here in the region. Yeah, where our water comes from has a lot to do with the taste. We sat down with the region's Director of Water Services, Mary McNeil, and Supervisor Dan Mahar to talk about the uniqueness of our water system. We'll start with a question that maybe not everyone in our community is familiar with, is is where does our tap water come from? 20% of our tap water comes from the Grand River. Uh, The remaining 80% comes from groundwater, which comes from over 120 wells scattered all over the region. How does the integrated system affect the taste of our water? The blend can change slightly depending where you live because we blend that groundwater with the surface water. So the taste might be slightly different in Waterloo versus, say, Cambridge, but it's all integrated into the same system and it can change a little bit from day to day. One day it might be coming from our William Street supply and then the next day from the Strange Street supply, for instance. So it it can be slightly different locales, slightly different mineral contents, and that can lead to slightly different taste too. It's a little bit of a unique system where if you take it all from a lake, it's pretty consistently the same water. How does the integrated system impact our supply of water? Uh, The region's different than communities that draw water from the Great Lakes. Um, Our water supplies are finite, and we need to be a bit more careful with our water use. It's a vast and complicated system uh, that many teams within the region watch over daily. We can uh, supply water um, right across as opposed to each city or township distinctly having their own supply. To have that versatility and just that, that partnership across uh, the region, I think, um, really does give us um, the flexibility um, to be able to ensure that we're always providing the best supply and bringing the water where the demand is, right? So that's kind of a unique uh, characteristic. Because we don't get our water from a lake, is it possible to run out? 
there is a short-term and a long-term supply. Short-term supply is related to how much water our system can supply at any one time. And if people use too much water all at once, it can deplete these stores of water. It can take us hours and days to catch up. Long-term supply relates to the amount of water in our underground aquifers um, and the amount of limited water we can take from the river. Um, some people are not aware that we store water in our underground aquifers, but good planning and management, including finding new local sources, ensures we never run out. What type of work do we do to ensure that we have good quality water and that we, we maintain our supply? It's a great question. Uh, so the region's constantly reviewing the state of our infrastructure and we're investing in our water supply and treatment systems, including wastewater treatment. Uh, like all municipalities, we have to meet strict Ontario drinking water standards. And to do this, we're always upgrading our treatment processes with the latest technologies and the best practices. Um, by having new technologies, it allows us to be energy efficient and it also allows us at the same time to deliver high quality water. Uh, because we're regulated, we sample often and our water goes through regular testing. Uh, the region also has redundant systems to make sure we supply good quality water always, even in emergencies. Mary says our water is subject to a lot more testing than bottled water, so it's as safe as it gets. And when you think about what goes into it, you realize just how well the treatment process works. We poop in the river and we drink the water in the river and we use the water in the river for lots of different things around our houses. And so if we don't protect what's going back into that river, it's coming back to us. That was Dr. Mark Servos, biology professor at the University of Waterloo. He's also the Canada Research Chair in Water Quality Protection. Sherry, you sat down with Dr. Servos to talk about his research into the condition of the water we drink and use. Yeah, almost 20 years ago, Dr. Servos partnered with the region to determine the impact of our wastewater on our aquatic ecosystem. To do this, they came up with a novel approach to monitor the health of our river. We've been looking at how wastewater, so municipal wastewater, so people's um, wastewater from their houses, uh, how that gets treated and how that impacts aquatic ecosystems. Uh, in particular, how does it affect fish? And what we found back um, almost 20 years ago now was that um, estrogens and uh, various pharmaceuticals that are in the wastewater can change the sacs of the fish. It can affect the reproductive physiology of the fish. And over time, the region has been upgrading the treatment plants, and we've been following the impact that, that the, we see downstream of those uh, wastewater treatment plants, and we've been seeing how the fish have been improving. So over that period of time, as they've invested in upgrading the treatment plants, there's been a disappearance of the responses and impacts on the fish. So it's a really huge success story of how um, we can remediate uh, the impacts and see great improvements in um, the downstream environment in the river. What led you to this species in particular and into this partnership with the region? When we started this project, we were trying to help design monitoring programs uh, for a, na a national program. And we just happened to sample at the site to get some preliminary data. And we opened up the fish and we saw this uh, eggs in the testes of these fish. You could actually see the eggs, which was really unusual. And so we contacted the region and started working with them because there's 
these treatment plants are very complex and so you need to work with the engineers to understand how the system works and then we can relate to what's going on in the river. So if we hadn't worked with the region directly, we would have lost a lot. We, we would have not understood what was going on. And so we work closely on a really routine basis uh, with various engineers and, and policy people to try to understand what steps were being taken and then how that related to the changes that we were seeing in the, in the fish. The region was very proactive and wanted to know what was going on in the river. The, the people of the region are investing a lot in wastewater treatment plants and they want to know if it's actually making a difference. And in this particular case, it made a big difference. Are there other ways that we continue, the, the region continues uh, its relationship with you in terms of, of monitoring? Yeah, we, we still, we're still monitoring uh, some of the treatment plants uh, are just continuously doing improvements. And so we've been monitoring the look at uh, um, macroinvertebrates, which are the bugs, and we've been looking at that data. We've been looking at fish downstream of, of various treatment plants to see if there's changes still occurring. Um, and we're now looking for very subtle effects. So we're looking for changes in metabolism. We're looking at changes in the fish. And of course, you, you can see subtle changes. The trick is separating out the different effects for the different, different things that are occurring in the river. So lots of different things that are occurring. We've got stormwater. We've got wastewater. We've got habitat change. We've got uh, climate change. We've got agriculture upstream. All of these things come together to have a cumulative impact in the river. And what we want to do is identify which things we can do that will have the greatest impact and the most value for the people of the region uh, in order to protect that environment. Part of your research involves building predictive models to help us better understand the, the impact of contaminant exposure in, on the ecosystem. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about those models and how that'll help us manage our water quality in the future? What we're trying to do is make predictions as to what will happen when we um, have remedial actions. So if we reduced or did additional treatment at um, the wastewater treatment plant, will that theoretically cause an improvement in the environment? Or is it better to focus on agriculture and, and support the farmers in terms of protecting the, um, the runoff into the, into the rivers? Or is it better to continue and improve the wastewater treatment plants? So by building models, we can, we can at least have a conceptual framework as to uh, how we can guide remediation in the long term. Nobody likes spending tax dollars <laughs> unless you have to, right? And so when and when you do spend it, you want to know that what you spent it on had a had an impact and created value, right? And in the case of upgrading the treatment plants, it had value in terms of reducing um, the impacts of the organic material in the river, but it also had a tremendous impact in getting rid of a whole bunch of contaminants that that also were removed. The region's investment in the wastewater treatment plants was a tremendous public effort in the region of Waterloo and it was tremendously successful in terms of the ecology and improving the ecology of the river. You can go for a canoe ride down the Grand River now and it is absolutely beautiful. I would encourage everybody to do that. It is like being out in the wilderness and it's right in our backyard. How do you think we should manage our projected population growth of 1 million by 2050? 
We just need to be really vigilant and we need to be willing to be innovative and continue to look for technologies that are going to help us to continuously improve. So as we get more and more people, it means there's going to be more massive com contaminants going into the, into the rivers, right? But that means that we need to continue to make it better and better and better over time so that the, the net benefit is always positive over time. The advantage of having more and more people is that we have more and more resources to implement technologies that are going to protect the environment. So we just need to not slip backwards and just continuously move forward and, and maintain our commitment that the environment isn't just something we go out and look at, it's something that supports and sustains our entire community. A healthy Grand River means a healthy population and community. It's not just a resource to go canoeing, but it's, a, it's an indicator of how healthy and sustainable our community is going to be in the future. It was great sitting down with Dr. Servos to learn more about our monitoring program for wastewater. Interestingly, we were able to repurpose the same process to monitor COVID infection rates during the pandemic. And like Professor Servos said, there are many factors we need to address to keep our river and our community healthy. Dan Mahar shared some of the other challenges our water system faces as the population continues to grow and how our behaviors factor in. What are the big challenges that you see coming up in, in the future? Yeah, planning for growth is a huge one because we know the community is going to add about 300,000 more people in the next 20 to 30 years. So planning for not only the people that are coming into the region, but planning for the people that are already here to ensure that the system addresses all their needs as well. And part of that is educating the communities that those people are using the water efficiently and properly too. Uh, climate change is also a, a huge challenge for everyone in kind of all industries. Uh, and the water industry is no different where we have increased frequency of main breaks, uh, we have higher risk of flooding, uh, potentially less precipitation, all these things come into play in our planning. So it requires uh, a lot of planning for our system to make sure that our facilities are resilient and adaptable to climate change, they can handle the impacts. Um, there's costs attached there as well though, so we have to plan out the budget for that and, and how to, to service that. And I'd say the main one when it comes to urbanization is just the increasing level of chlorides we're finding in our, because we use groundwater and we use wells underground, uh, urbanization leads to more paved surfaces and more paved surfaces means more salting in the winter. And the more salting in the winter, the more chlorides we see in our wells. So that's a challenge for us because it's once, once it's in there, it's hard to mitigate. So uh, that I would flag that as a big challenge with urbanization. It just requires, again, a lot of, a lot of planning uh, in terms of research of best practices uh, around salting and whatnot, but community education as well, because that's where we need contractors, building operators, et cetera, to kind of be on site and, and help work with us to reduce those chlorides. What can I do in, as an individual or what can my family do? What are a couple of key things that we can do to, to help uh, mitigate the, our impact on, on the water supply? Yeah, it's a great question because I think a lot of people tend to think they're just a drop in the bucket. It doesn't really matter what they do, but really collectively it does matter a lot. And one of the big things we found, so in, in the region has a uh, home review program in the water conservation area where we will, people that are using more water than they, they think they should be using, ask us for help. So we'll actually go to their home and review their water use. 
what we're finding through that program very consistently is the number one thing that leads to high water use is actually their own behaviors. A big one is just length of showers. People constantly underestimate how long they're in the showers, and that's a big water guzzler. Uh, the outdoor water use, people turn the sprinkler on for 10 minutes and think, oh, that's not very much. But if they actually quantify how much water they're using on their lawns, that's a lot. And if they do it midday, that's evaporating. It's not really effective for anyone. So those types of things, um, but even just doing an accounting of your house, are your aerators and shower heads and toilets sufficient? If not, it might be worth that upgrade because it's win-win. You'll save money on your water bill. Uh, the region, the community will save water. So there's all kinds of little actions like that that people can take. And I, I also would just flag the winter maintenance piece too is educating yourself to understand how much salt you need in the winter to to mitigate your ice and snow. A lot of people over salt. They think more is better where really there's not much salt required to do the trick. And salt doesn't even work in certain conditions like if it's worse than minus 10 or, or those types of conditions. So all kinds of little homeowner actions that add up to a, to a better, healthier water system. Well, it looks like we made it through this episode with only a few puns about water. I like Dan's drop in the bucket reference. Do you have any others? Only that this podcast is now Water Under the Bridge. <laughs> well done, Sam. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you liked what you heard today, there is more to come. The region of Waterloo International Airport has been here for 70 years and operating commercial aircraft since 2004. It is actually the busiest general aviation airport in Canada. In our next episode, we're going to look at YKF and ask the question, why an airport? On one hand, it's easy to point to the convenience of saving your trip to Pearson, but what are the advantages of having the airport to the community and what's in store for the future? We hope you join us next time to find out.